Okay, y'all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 this morning, starting at verse 4 and going down to verse 10. We began the book of 1 Thessalonians last week, and we made very little forward progress. <laughs> we only went through the first three. But I hope as we go through some of these verses, you can recognize that it's not just going slow for the sake of going slow, but there's so much here to unpack that I want to make sure we can give at least some attention to each of these things. Most of last week was spent looking at the background of the Thessalonian epistles. That in Acts 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy had come to the city of Thessalonica. They did not have a good reception among the Jews, but the Gentiles went after them. The Jews started a riot and brought Jason, the man that was hosting them, before the Politarchs, and they had to flee the city to Berea. Then the Thessalonian Jews chased them to Berea, and Paul had to flee to Athens and then down to Corinth. And when Timothy finally rejoined Paul after he was in Corinth for a long time, worrying about the Thessalonians, Timothy brings a good report. And so Paul says, oh, great, let's write 1 Thessalonians to encourage them, reconnect with them, and also to answer some doctrinal questions. And we're able to date this book pretty solidly to about 50 AD, which makes it one of, if not the first epistle that Paul wrote. Very cool. And these first three verses were just the greeting. Paul says he's been praying for the church, remembering their faith, their hope, their love. And in the remainder of these verses that we're going to look at today, the authors are going to explain how they know that the conversion of the Thessalonians was legitimate. And that provides a good benchmark for us too, because we wonder that sometimes about ourselves or about others. And it's good for us to know that the Bible wants us to know that we've been saved. 1 John 5.13, the apostle wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It sounds very spiritual to say things like, well, we can never know. You just got to hope that on that day your name will be called. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I want you to know. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to look at seven things. I didn't make it that way. That's just how it was written. But seven things that caused Paul and Silas and Timothy to know that the Thessalonians had been legitimately converted. And these are things that we can look at in our lives. And these are not so much things that we've got to pump ourselves up to do. It's things that you look at your life and you say, is this happening here? To, at least to some degree, are these things happening in my life? And if they're not, then you ought to take some time and say, why not? Maybe for some of you, this is going to be a day of soul searching and prayer to say, have I really encountered Jesus Christ for myself? Because maybe you have and you've got to get back to the former things, as Jesus told the church in Ephesus. Or you've never encountered the Lord, despite being in church maybe for a long time. Don't let that moment pass you by. So let's go ahead and read verse 4 down to the first part of verse 5. And then we're going to go back and do phrases at a time. For we know, there it is, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know, he says. That Greek word is edates, and that word for is not there in the Greek. It just helps us with the understanding, but he's saying knowing. In the earlier verses, he says we are constantly mentioning you, constantly remembering you, and here he carries that same thing, knowing this, knowing that he has chosen you. 
And he uses a noun there. He says, we know your election, your ekloge, your election by God to be among the saved. We know for sure that you've been elect. And now that doctrine of election is a controversial one. And it's not a controversy that we're going to wade into today. There will be a day for that. And that will be a lot of fun. But I only want to state today that it is biblical. Wherever you land on that that doctrinal dispute, it is biblical. Jesus said in John 15, 16 to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And Paul says it here. It's that love of God that compels him to choose us for salvation. Remember in Malachi chapter 1, verse 3? One of those verses that makes us uncomfortable in Scripture where he says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, God loves the whole world, but that's a special choosing kind of love. You know, you, you choose your wife because you love her. That doesn't mean that you hate all other women. But by comparison, you kind of do. I love her and everybody else. What difference does it make? So there's two aspects of love here. That God does love all men and sent Jesus to die for everyone. But there's a special kind of love that only the Christian experiences because you experience the saving love of God. Now, this is heaven's domain here. The Bible does not give us any explanation of the mechanics of election as much as we might want to understand them. So you shouldn't stress about it. You should focus on what you have been given to do, and there's plenty that you've been given to do. Peter will say, make your call and election sure in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. But what's interesting about this is Paul says, I know you've been chosen. And he's going to go on to explain why that is. It kind of takes some of the mystique off of that weird doctrine of predestination. Paul's like, oh, I know. I know you're saved. I don't know if we can know. Well, Paul said you can. And it just makes sense, right? Because if if you've been saved, if the Holy Spirit of God has come into your heart and transformed it, brought you from death to life, from darkness to light, you're going to change. It doesn't make any sense to say, oh, God came into my life, but, you know, not much has really happened. When people come into your life, you change. Even when people you don't like come into your life, you change. So if you meet Jesus, there will be obvious change. There's no such thing as secret salvation. I'm a, I'm a hidden Christian. No one knows it. And you could never tell if you look at my life, my mouth is just as foul as it was before. My attitude is just as bad as it was before. But no, I'm, I'm saved. Paul's like, are you sure about that? Well, I don't think it's fair to question someone's salvation. How about your own salvation? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Here's what Paul said. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, there are a lot of very well-meaning Christians that will tell you, don't ever question your salvation. If you question it, that's a sign that it's not real. Paul didn't say that. Paul said, if you're an apple tree, there's going to be apples on that tree. If you're a fig tree, there's going to be figs on that tree. That's why Peter said, confirm your calling and election. And then he runs into this big, long ethical teaching. He's like, saved lives are changed lives. So, is your life been changed? God chooses us, but we can know whether we've been chosen. And the way we know that is by examining our lives and examining our salvation. So, as we go through this today, 
Paul's going to explain, moving on from verse 5 forward, how he knows. It's an important thing for us. And as we go through these seven things, I want you to examine yourself. Say, I, I believe I'm saved. And there's nothing wrong with feeling assured of your salvation. It's what we're talking about today. But examine yourself. Say, this is what the Bible says a saved person looks like. Does that look like me? And then we'll see what the Lord wants to do. Because Jesus warned us, didn't he, that there would be many who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things for you? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I tell people about this moral thing and that it was wrong? And didn't I raise good kids? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Many will say on that day, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Put it this way, not everybody that went forward at a meeting will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody that's been going to church for decades and tithing is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we ought to periodically come back and say, Lord, where do I stand? And this is what we're going to do this morning. So let's see these seven things. Starting at verse 5, we know he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's that word because. Here's how I know. Because when the gospel came, as we read about not too long ago in Acts chapter 17, they received it not only in word, but with those three things, power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. So our first thing, this is how Paul knew they were saved. Number one, they had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only in word. Now what does that mean? This is an assertion from Scripture that true reception of the gospel is not merely intellectual. You could even say it's not mainly intellectual. There is absolutely an intellectual component. We affirm the truth of the gospel, but that's not enough. It says in another place, you believe that God is one. Well, good, but so do the demons. They believe that God is one and they tremble. So it's not enough just to know. Paul says you have had a experience with the Holy Spirit. Paul said this a lot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul put it this way. Just listen to this. When he's writing to the church in Corinth, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Very similar passages here. It's not enough to just assent to the truth of the doctrine. It's not enough to agree that, well, your argument has really pinned me down and I can't escape it, so I guess you're right. That's not enough. It's not enough just to hear great messages and to hear great teaching and to have your entire Christian life maintained by preaching. As a preacher, that, that takes a lot of pressure off of me. And I'll tell you, I have found through years of ministry now that preaching is not enough if somebody has not encountered God. Because I'm with you one, two, maybe three hours a week. And if you're paying attention, let's assume that all three of those hours are good. If you then go home and you have no personal life with Christ, 
You immediately, like the second you get in the car, you're back on your phone, you're looking at all the same stuff you look at, you're having those same gossipy conversations with your friends, you're going about the same activities you always do, it's not going to change you. It's not enough. And it doesn't matter what a great preacher I am. There's a famous story where George Whitfield came to America and preached to tens of thousands of peoples. And Benjamin Franklin was there writing about how wonderful his speaker he was and measuring how far his voice could carry. Wow, this is unbelievable. But he was never saved. He said later on, Whitfield, yeah, always tried to get me to believe, but, you know, I never did. It's like, well, then what difference does it make if you thought he was a great preacher? It's not in word only. And this is important because we have a tendency to idolize people who are doctrinaires. We idolize apologists, people who can defend the faith, or orators. A lot of people that are great public speakers, lousy theologians, lousy lives, but they call crowds of thousands of people to come hear them because they're just so amazing to hear them speak. It's not sufficient. Doctrine's important. Good preaching is important. I love good preaching. Apologetics is important, but it's not the most important thing. Look at these three things. Power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. That does not sound sterile or intellectual to me. In fact, it makes some of you uncomfortable to read that. I know you're saved because power, Holy Spirit, full conviction. Not just words. That first word, power. This is the word dunamis. It's where we get words like dynamic and even dynamite. It describes power, and it specifically describes a supernatural work of God. Very, very often, this word is translated miracles. So Paul's not just talking about, oh, that was such a powerful message. No, I mean like miraculous power, healing power, delivering power. Second, the Holy Spirit. Now we just came out of the book of Acts. You know what it's like when the Holy Spirit comes to somebody, when the Holy Spirit would take hold of their life, and they, they do like Zacchaeus where they make a complete 180 because they encountered the living God. And very often in the New Testament that the speaking in tongues and the prophesying and just the boldness for witness, joy in their suffering, only God can do those kinds of things. Only God can do that. And Paul says, when I saw the Spirit at work in your life, I knew, oh, this is legit. Because God is at work. And he says, full conviction. Pleraphoria pole. That means full conviction, full assurance, full confidence. And it actually, it's, it's double here. Because he says, full assurance, or great full assurance. Or a lot of full assurance. And that word goes untranslated because it doesn't seem so smooth in English. But that's how he puts it. They knew. Not only did Paul know, but they knew. He could see in their lives that they had been totally changed. They were fully convinced of everything that Paul said. Full conviction. This is what Paul looked at. Their entrance into the kingdom of God was accompanied by what 1 Corinthians 2 called the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Thessalonians had an ongoing supernatural salvation experience. And you know, we've somehow flipped it around where we say the best most surefire conversions are those where there's no emotion and no special story, just an intellectual assent to the gospel. You know who says that? Academics say that. <laughs> Academic theologians that write all the books, they say, really, emotion is not good for the kingdom of God. Where does the Bible say that? When people got filled with the Spirit, man, they were 
emotional. When I've been filled with the Spirit, it's emotional. It's passionate. It's exciting. Now, you don't let your emotions drive the bus, but this is God we're talking about. Come on. Well, the best way, you know, I'm always suspicious of somebody that got saved during an emotional worship service. Why? If you've got a hard, calloused, stoic person, and they, they're sitting in a worship service, and the music just moves them, and finally it breaks through all that, now the Holy Spirit can get in and touch that heart that he couldn't touch otherwise, and now that life's been transformed. We're so silly, aren't we? We're, we're scientific, and we're suspicious of things that God has created to be good. That's not what the Bible holds up as an example. Many of you have had similar experiences here. Many of you, when you got saved, the Lord gave you some kind of vision for your life. Somebody spoke prophetically over you. Some of y'all, even when you got saved and filled with the Spirit, you began to speak in tongues. And some of you keep it quiet because you're afraid people are going to think you're weird. But let me say, biblically, all of that is legitimate. Hey, we're laughing, but I'll tell you what, the amount of people who have come up to me half whispering and saying, you know, I was saved and I've been praying and I started speaking in tongues. I don't know what to do. It just, and I feel so close to the Lord, but I don't know what to do. I've always been taught this is wrong. And, you know, when I'm worshiping the Lord, it just comes to me and I begin to speak and I'm just so grateful to the Lord. It's like, well, what does the Bible say? That when God touches your life, your life changes. And 1 Corinthians 12 calls it the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is God after all. Let me calm some of your nerves. That's a legitimate experience. If you have had a, an encounter with the Lord that maybe was never repeated, especially when you first got saved or you were in a certain meeting and God just got hold of your life and you, you feel like you were just picked up in the hands of God, that's from Jesus. That's what God does. It's impossible to wriggle out of the fact that the New Testament expected Christians to be able to identify the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Paul writes to these people and says, oh, you know, like the Holy Spirit, what he's doing in your midst. He writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 5 and says, the Holy Spirit who works wonders among you, dynamis, same word, is who works miracles among you. He expected them to be able to look at all the supernatural things going on and say, oh yeah, I guess God is here, isn't he? And somehow we've lost that too. Where we say that if you seek those things, you're neglecting the authority of Scripture. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm affirming the authority of Scripture. Because look at what the Word says. Most of us are comfortable with a calm, stoic religion with no surprises. We can plan it down to the second what we're going to do and we'll walk away. But Paul warned against the kind of faith that was in Word only. If the only thing we've got going for us as a church is words, then we need to be careful and say, Lord, where are you? Because they might be good words. We believe in words. We preach the word. But there's got to be more than that. There's a man, if you've all ever heard the That's My King sermon, a guy named S.M. Lockridge. And he has a quote in there that I love. He says, our sophistication, our efforts to be recognized by the world as a sophisticated organization, he said, they're sucking the life out of our religion. I hope that will never be said of us. That in our efforts to be sophisticated and respected by people who hate Jesus, we don't neglect and quench the Holy Spirit. We've seen that here. We've seen the Holy Spirit in this room where y'all are sitting work out lifelong problems in people's lives in one evening. Lifelong problems. Emotional stuff that a therapist would tell you you're going to need years to get over that. And Jesus comes in and says, boom, right now, fixed. We've seen people healed of their sickness in this room. We've seen manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has given us prophecy in this room that has come to pass. So we need to recognize that's from the Lord. 
We're seeing exactly what the Bible said. Paul hung the assurance of their salvation on the encounters they had with the power of God. Can I give you one more example of this? And this is the longest we're going to spend in any one of these seven, but it's so important. You know, I found that a lot of times the Christians in the church that are the most emotionless, the most stale, the most in word only, are often very critical of the expression of worship of those in the church that are not in word only. Because we write such joyful worship songs, such exuberant declarations of faith, and the celebration and the joy, and folks look at that and say, that's so unseemly. That's not true religion. How can you write something like that? How do you know you've been saved? Because I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart that only comes from the Holy Spirit. You don't see a lot of skeptics writing joyful worship songs, do you? But those that have allowed the Holy Spirit room to move in their life, they just can't stop praising the Lord and celebrating what He's done, huh? So that's the first thing. They had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading the second half of verse 5 now into the first half of verse 6. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, this is a theme that Paul will return to in a lot of detail later, especially in chapter 2, where he's going to describe the conduct of his missionary team. The whole point that he's making there is our lives, which have been changed by the Lord, you began to imitate, which means you can only do that if you had been truly saved. He's saying, we know you're saved because your lives started to look like our lives. Proved to be, that word is ginemai, we were or we became imitators. Imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. This is number two, how we knew they were saved. They were imitators of godly men. What matters most is a transformed life. We don't want to be obsessed with just the words and the knowledge and the doctrine, nor do we want to just be obsessed with the signs and the wonders and the emotionalism and all that. Those are two opposite errors to avoid. What matters at the bottom of all that is a transformed life. The missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they lived in accordance with what Jesus had taught, in humility, in obedience, in worship, and the Thessalonians copied them. They started to live like Paul. And that word for imitator is mimites in Greek. It's where we get the word mimic from. It's also where we get the word imitate. We drop the first M and it's imitate. It means to look at someone more spiritual than you and act like them. That's an imitator. That's a mimic. And Paul would, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he would say, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He would tell the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Do your children imitate you? You ever catch them saying something or doing something that you do? Or wives, you ever look at your sons and you say, oh, he looks just like his daddy. I'm, I'm helping coach my son's t-ball team right now, and there was a four-year-old boy. I was coaching third base. He comes on the third base, and he stands there, puts his hand behind his back, and starts standing just like this. And I look over, there's his grandpa standing just like this. Sticking his belly out. It was the cutest little thing because he's imitating the way that his grandfather or his father, whoever it was, was living. Like beloved children. They look at daddy, they look at mommy, and they want to be like them. And Paul says, we know you were saved because you imitated us. We have a tendency to place so much emphasis on our own personal style when it comes to Christian life. I remember asking our worship team when 
I led the worship team in, in the previous church I was at. I was telling them, you know, when we're doing these celebratory, excited songs, you need to make sure that your face matches what you're singing, you know. <laughs> you don't want to be singing something joyful and you're like this weeping face on. And some of them got mad. You're telling me how to worship. That's not how I worship. That's not how I do it. To which I would say, well, who cares how you do it? <laughs> well, that's just my style. That's my thing. Well, the Bible doesn't put a whole lot of emphasis on that, i got to tell you. Find a godly example and follow that. You don't know how to pray when you're first saved. You don't know how to worship. You don't know how to share the gospel. You don't know how to preach. So find someone who does those things well and do it their way. That's how Jesus did it, isn't it? He got 12 disciples and he said, you live with me and watch me and follow me for three years. Then I'll send you out and you go do the same thing for other people. Third John 11 says, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Find someone to imitate in your Christian life. Find someone that does the best at evangelism that you've ever seen and hang around with them and ask if you can go share the gospel together. Find somebody who, when they pray, it just stirs your heart and you can almost feel heaven shaking. Just start praying like them. I don't want to be a copycat. Why not? It says be a copycat. It says be a mimic. Be a mimites. Now let me add this here. Distant examples through books, through video teachings, through the internet, those are helpful. It's helpful to imitate historical Christianity. It's helpful to imitate some of the well-known Christian people. But let me say this. Those are inferior examples compared to somebody that lives close to you and that you see regularly. It even can be dangerous because you can develop an attitude that says, well, that's my pastor. He lives 3,000 miles away, but that's my pastor. So nobody here can tell me how to live because I'm imitating him. Do you see the, the danger there? You need someone that sees you in person regularly because a book or an online preacher cannot correct you. They cannot look at something you're doing and say, knock that off because they don't know you. They can't speak to you personally. They can't take the message that they preach to a general audience and then apply it to your life. They can't tell you anything you don't want to hear because if you don't like it, you just skip and go to the next video. Now, there is a lot of value to, to Bible teaching that we find from around the world and great books. I read so many books, it's probably a problem, okay? But, but, it is a difficulty of the days in which we are living that many, many pastors find themselves with a congregation full of people that do not respect their authority and do not respect the, even their teaching. I just show here because i got to go to church somewhere, but all the teaching I get is online somewhere. Imagine trying to pastor a church like that. Because now you try to correct somebody, and rather than say, yes, pastor, I'll pray that through, they're going to challenge you and throw it right back in your face. That's hard. Find somebody you can mimic and imitate around you. Somebody that can call you out every once in a while. I had my father to be that for me. Every now and then I'd get a phone call to come down to his office, and I knew when it was time for a dressing down. Usually I knew what I'd done, like I, and then I'd get to go, hey, can you come down to my office? I'm like, oh, no. Because usually it was like, hey, man, how you doing? Why don't you come on down? But when the voice got real low, I'm like, up oh, here it comes. If you don't have somebody that can do that for you in your life, you need to find one. Find somebody. That's what the church is for. Look around you. These are godly people. That's what the home fellowships are for. That's what these events are for. It's also how you know if you're truly a believer. Are you becoming more like the Christians that you admire or less? Moving on here, 
For you received the word in much affliction, much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So there's one particular aspect of their imitation that made Paul know that they were saved. They had joy in their sufferings. Number three, they had joy in their sufferings. Do you remember in Acts 17, the Jews started a rabble. It said they got some of the worthless men of the city together, formed a mob, went to Jason's house where they were staying. Paul and Silas weren't there, so they just grabbed Jason and brought him to the city square and said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason had to pay, do you remember, that security for Paul and his companions in case anything got broken. And that did not end when Paul left. But you know what? These Thessalonians did not become angry at Paul. I didn't know this was going to be a suffering religion. They didn't get bitter at their city. I never liked Thessalonica anyway. Let's get out of here. Let's leave them for the wrath of God. They were full of the joy that can only come through the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of nasty things being said about Christians these days. And I have a tendency to get offended by those things. But do you know what Jesus told me I ought to do? The Lord nailed me on this when I was studying. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you become a Christian, you have an entirely new view on life and suffering. And that's going to change your demeanor when you go through hard times. We believe, first of all, suffering is a purifying fire. When you go through something difficult, it can burn off all of that sin that you've been hanging on to. Because you've got to draw so close to the Lord to make it through those things that it just burns away. And secondly, we know that the world is not our home. We're headed for another kingdom. So when we suffer, we know that's just preparing us for an eternal hope of glory. We're storing up treasures in heaven. So that when we suffer, it's hard, but we go, it's all right. I can do this. And don't forget, by the way, number three, you're just commanded to be full of joy. It's not optional. Jesus didn't say, I'd really like you to be joyful if you can swing it. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. When you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, He produces joy. He doesn't produce panic. He doesn't produce anger. He produces joy and peace and love. Do you have that? We've all been going through trials this year. If Paul were to have seen you go through all the mess we went through this year, if you see how you handle the pandemic and how you handle the social unrest and how you're handling the election, would he look at your life and say, that person's a Christian because they've got joy in their suffering? Or would he say, Have you, do you know God? Do you know that he's got the whole world in his hands? Do you know that he's sovereign over all these things? Do you know that he's the one that raises up nations and brings them down and raises up kings and puts them down? Do you know that you've got heaven waiting for you and this life is like this fast and then you're going to be in heaven for the rest of forever? Examine yourself. Is there joy in your sufferings? Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Here's number four. We're going faster now. But they set an example to others. So they had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They were imitators of godly men. They had joy in their sufferings. And they set an example to others. 
So they went from imitating Paul to setting an example for other people. They were a young church too, remember? They were like one year old. <laughs> but they were setting an example for all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Remember Antioch in the book of Acts? Jerusalem was the big kahuna, the big church. But Antioch starts setting the pace for the church through their missions, through their acceptance of the Gentiles, through the prophetic word that God was giving them. So how long you've been a believer has very little to do with whether you're setting an example to those around you. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul told Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And I'll tell you what, I'm a 29-year-old pastor. I have to remember that verse every day. Y'all are very kind and very sweet to me, but not everybody has been that way since I've made it down here. I'll tell you. Say, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Are you like an assistant pastor? No, I'm the senior pastor. And they go, oh. <laughs> well. Well, I, you know, that's good. We, we really need to reach the young people around here. And I'm like, well, I'm not just here to reach young people. I'm here to reach everybody. Oh, wow, I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> so I can say this even though it applies directly to me. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been in one church or another. Are you full of the Holy Spirit and setting an example for the believers? So maybe some of you who have maybe been following Jesus for a long time but haven't made very much progress, when you see somebody who seems to be churning along the path faster than you, you need to have enough humility to say, I'm going to do it like him. I'm going to do it like her. Hey, I, I, rem I was old when they were born, but you know what? They're setting an example. <laughs> Same thing for me as I grow older too. I'm on, the, I'm on this end of it now, but I hope that the Lord would give me enough pliability in his hands to recognize when the hand of God is on somebody else. I'd be like, now you just listen to me and follow me. It's like, hey, man, if you're going faster, I'm going with you. So all I care about is following Jesus. And if you can show me how to do that, that's all that matters. So to the churches in Macedonia, that includes Philippi, that includes Berea, down into Achaia, where you had Athens, where you had Corinth. said all the churches around here, they all know, man, those Thessalonians, man, they're doing it right. And he's going to elaborate more on this in the next verses, but... Let me just wrap that up by saying, you can tell a true Christian by the effect they have on other Christians. When people talk to you, are they closer to Jesus than they were before they talked to you? Think about that. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's a great little verse. He's talking about their example Thessalonian church was an evangelizing church. He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. This word in Greek is a compound word. It's exekeo. Ek means out of, to come out of something. Exit is where we get that word. And the word ekeo, which is where we get the word echo from. It's a sound. So you are sounding forth. The message is going out. That word was translated in various Greek language, uh, language documents as Trumpets, a trumpet blast, the exekeo of the trumpet, the roar of a crowd, the thunderclap, even a rumor sometimes that it was just going out everywhere. You couldn't stop it. It was going everywhere. This is the language of announcement. Your faith, he says later, has gone forth. And he says, when, by the time we get somewhere, we don't need to say anything because your testimony's already got there. 
Their testimony was outpacing the evangelism of Paul and Silas. How cool is that? I know you're saved, he says, because you're evangelistic. They were spreading the gospel even faster than he was. Now, Paul, in, in his second journey, was more of a church planner at this point. He stayed in Corinth for a long time, 18 months. I mean, he would go out to these other places. Hey, let's go take the gospel to Dalmatia. Oh, wait, you know what? The Thessalonians already got there. I love that. Now, there's an ancient Christian saying. I've heard it ascribed to Ambrose and to Chrysostom and all these guys, but it doesn't really matter because we all say it still. You ever heard this one? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now listen, that makes an important point, right? Your life should be a testimony. But don't use that as a cop-out to not talk to anybody. I'm just letting my life testify of Jesus. How about let your words testify of Jesus? I'm setting a good example. Well, if you're not attaching that example to the name of Jesus, who cares? This is why I get concerned. Can I go on a little rabbit trail? I get concerned when Christians enter the public space and we want to advocate for righteousness, we want to advocate for justice and for good laws, but we don't ground those things in the doctrine and the truth of Scripture. We try to appeal to the mind. We try to appeal to people's logic and common sense. Now, God's laws are sensible, but we strip them of their power when we do that. The word of the Lord does not return void. It always accomplishes what God sends it out to do. So if we're out there trying to change people's hearts, don't just go out there and tell them, hey, it's wrong. Don't do that. You say, you can't do that. That's sin. That's what Jesus came to die for. Don't you know that Jesus died for you? Open your mouth to share the gospel. You know Jesus has told you this. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist. That's great, because some of us will go, well, I'm not an evangelist. There are people who are evangelists, and God's given them that gift, and so it's not my responsibility. Hey, I'm not an evangelist either. I'm great at this. I'm not so good at that. But I have a command from Paul that says, do the work of an evangelist. That's not my ministry. I don't care what your ministry is. There are people that are dying and going to hell. Get over yourself. True Christians can't wait to tell other people of their salvation. I love being around new believers because they haven't learned to be embarrassed yet. They're just going to go tell everybody. They'll sit down at the restaurant and say, uh, yeah, I'll take an iced tea with lemonade. Hey, did you know that Jesus died for you and that he's coming back? And if you don't repent, you're going to spend forever in hell. And you kind of go, oh, come on. Sometimes it's cringy. Sometimes it's embarrassing. But it's like, you know what? We all need a little bit of that. I think the church starts to neglect evangelism when you get like legacy members. People that are just there because it's what they do. It's long past that initial burst of energy and they're embarrassed and afraid to evangelize and it changes the culture. Don't do that. These Thessalonians were being persecuted. They hadn't even been Christians for longer than a couple months. They didn't have structure. They didn't have organization. But they showed up the whole world with their evangelism. If all you can come up with today is excuses of why you shouldn't or can't share the gospel, Paul would question whether you don't need a little evangelism yourself. Verse 9, For they themselves, meaning the people in Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You remember we talked about this. We'll get into it more in chapter 3 when Paul explains the scenario. But he was anxious for word of the Thessalonians. Number one, how's their testimony? Are they still following Jesus? And number two, I hope they're not mad at me because I had to leave their town really fast and I don't want them to think that I abandoned them. 
So he's waiting for that. But you know what? He's starting to hear not only testimonies of their conversion, but he's also hearing testimonies of, oh, yeah, Paul and Silas came and it was awesome. So it's kind of calming Paul's nerves a little bit here, like, okay, we're still good because I, did, I didn't want to abandon you, and they knew that. But there's a fantastic little explanation of what the gospel is here and what it means to be saved and therefore what we ought to be preaching. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turned to God from idols. That's as good a definition as repentance as you're ever going to get. Turning to God from idols. That word for idol, eidolon, it's the Greek word that just says idol, but it means shadow or shade. Homer used that word to describe the souls that lived in the underworld, that they're not really there. They're just kind of there, but they're not. That's where we get the word idol from. It's just kind of useless. There's nothing really there. There's no substance to it. And they turn from that to serve the true and living God. I love the title, the living God. Because there's lots of gods, but there's only one God that's living, and that's the Lord. This is number six, how we know they were saved. They abandoned their idols, and they followed Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and Andrew mending their nets. Why were they mending their nets? Because the last time they were in the boat, Jesus got them so many fish, their nets started to rip apart. Jesus comes back and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What does it say? They left their nets, left the boats, they left the hired hands, and they followed Jesus. And he goes down a little farther. There's James and John. Hey, come follow me. He goes to Matthew in his tax table and he says, hey, why don't you come follow me? I love that story because he was a tax collector. Jesus, not him. Anybody but him, please. That guy's ripped me off so many times. He said, hey, and he says he left his tax table and followed him. Leaving your idols behind. The woman at the well in Samaria left her water pot. She left her old way of life and followed after Jesus. That's true conversion. Leaving your old life to follow Christ. To believe that he was who he said he was and then to submit to his word. Conversion is not about agreeing with good morals. Have you noticed, especially keeping this theme here, the, the election season, there's tons of people that agree with our Christian moral positions that are not Christian people. And I get nervous when we start to make common cause with folks like that. Because it's like, it's not enough. Well, they're such a good person. When we say someone's a good person, what do we usually mean? They're nice. They're a nice person. Oh, I know that they're fornicating, but they're so nice. I know that he's a cheat and a ripoff, but he's so nice. I know that they worship another God, but they're so nice. I don't think God would send them to hell. Don't deceive yourself. It's not about good morals. It's not about Christianity's cultural value. Have you noticed that folks are picking that up now? We've got to stand for Western culture. We've got to bring back the church. It's like, no, we don't need to bring back the church. We need to bring back the gospel because the church is rotten in a lot of places. We want to bring back the institution? No, we want to bring back the God of the institution. It's not a talisman that you can wave around and it's going to get you a great culture. You need Jesus. Thessalonica was 50 miles from Mount Olympus where they believed the gods lived. They could see it from where they lived. That's where Jupiter and Juno live. That's where Apollos lives. That's where all these gods that we've heard about so long, they live up there, but they abandoned all that for Jesus Christ. How radical is that? To leave behind all of that culture and all that history and say, nope, we're serving this new God that we heard about from some little town in Jerusalem somewhere. Our transformation should be no less radical 
Because here's the thing. Our culture has turned from idols. Thank God. We don't have idols in the streets. Okay? And we have these spiritual idols, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you don't have a giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar that you've got to bow down to in order to vote. You know what I mean? But we did not turn to the living God. You turn from your wickedness. You don't turn to God. You're only halfway there, and halfway is as good as no way when it comes to this kind of thing. Lots of folks that say, I'm not going to live wicked anymore. Well, good. I'm glad. But you need to come to Jesus. It's not enough. We've got to be insistent on that. If you're in this, meaning if you're in the church, you're in Christianity for self-empowerment or some other kind of carnal goal so you can network for your business so that you can have your kids raised with some good morals, you're not part of Christ's fold. And you have to turn from your idols today. And I mean today because you might not get tomorrow. You might not even make it out of that parking lot. So don't put it off. We don't believe in self-empowerment as Christians. We believe that all power belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's about us giving up our pretensions of power. Amen? Amen. Verse 10, coming to the end here. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the last part of that testimony. The message that they were preaching was not just that Jesus died from on the cross and that you got to turn from your idols. They were preaching, Jesus is coming back. Remember that song, People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming. That was their message. That just as He was raised from the dead, He is going to raise us from the dead someday. And you'll remember I mentioned before that the Thessalonians had some misunderstandings concerning the return of the Lord, and that's part of the reason Paul wrote this letter. And we get to that towards the end of the book, but already you see he's mentioning Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the number seven reason why Paul knew they were saved. They were waiting for the return of the Lord. They did not love their life so much that they hoped Jesus didn't come back today. You ever caught yourself thinking something like that? Well, I got something coming up. Oh, this is going to be a really good game today. I really hope that we don't have some kind of revival at church or anything because I've got to get home and watch that game. I've got to be somewhere. A true Christian is looking to heaven, waiting for Jesus to return. We believe that the rapture is imminent. There is nothing preventing the day of the Lord. This is something we've got to remember. Just because certain things move into place that would seem to line up with what the Bible says is going to happen in the end days, God does not need any of that to happen. The Lord could have raptured us before Israel was in the land, before any of those nations were in play, and He could have done it all. The Lord is not hindered by any of those things. We've got to remember that. What we do is we start waiting for some weird national thing to line up. Oh, now Jesus can come back. He doesn't need that. He's standing at the door ready, waiting. And I want to hang a flag on that last phrase, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That word from is the word ek. Remember we talked about that? Ek like exit, out of. He delivers us out of the wrath to come. That is, you will not have to endure the wrath to come. Oh, you know, pre-trib Christians, they just believe that they shouldn't have to suffer for Jesus. False. Wrong. I've been in pre-trib churches my whole life. I went to a pre-trib seminary. I've never once heard that said, except as an accusation. But there's a difference between suffering and the wrath of God. The tribulation is not suffering. It's the wrath of God. It's God turning His judgment on a sinful world. And if you are a Christian, the wrath of God was already poured out on Christ Jesus on the cross. There's no more wrath left for you. 
Jesus is not going to say, I'm going to deliver you from all the wrath of God unless you, you know, happen to live into the tribulation, and then you'll have seven years of the wrath of God. We don't believe in purgatory. We believe in salvation. Revelation 3, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you ek from, out of the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. God does not punish the righteous with the unrighteous. That is as firmly established a principle in Scripture as we've got. It says in the Old Testament that God brought Daniel and his companions in that wave of exiles out of Jerusalem because he says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem and it would not be right for me to destroy it while they're there. When God was fitting to destroy Sodom, he went and he got Lot and brought him out of there because God does not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. So we believe that the Lord is delivering us out of the coming tribulation, which is a, one of the strongest arguments we have for a pre-tribulational rapture, which we will get into in much more detail in several weeks to come. All that's important for us today is to know that a true believer who's been truly saved is waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. They're watching the sky. They're ready. They even have those panicked moments sometimes, like, God told me to share the gospel with them, and I blew it today. What if, what if Jesus comes back tonight and I missed it? Hey, that, those are okay feelings to have. Let them drive you to do the right thing. John says, you don't want to shrink in shame from Jesus when he comes. You don't want to hear that trumpet blast and the Lord is coming to return us and you go, oh, not now, Lord, please. Not while I'm watching this movie, Lord. Not while I'm hanging out with that girl, Lord. Not while I'm in this conversation, Lord. You don't want to do that. Let it compel you to walk ready any moment for the Lord to come. The Thessalonians did, and it gave Paul assurance for that church. This is a dense passage, isn't it? This is why, why we have to go slow through these epistles, because there's so much. That's like seven sermons I could have preached right there. But let me run through these things again. How did Paul, Silas, and Timothy know that the Thessalonians had been elected and loved by God? First, they had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just words, power. Number two, they were imitators of godly men. Their lives were transforming one day at a time. Third, they had joy in their sufferings. They weren't mopey, they weren't bitter, they weren't angry, they were full of joy. Fourth, they set an example for others. Fifth, they were evangelistic. They didn't keep the message to themselves. Sixth, they turned from idols to the Lord. And seventh, they were waiting for the return of Jesus. And all of those things, all those seven things put together, Paul's like, yeah, y'all are saved. I know you're saved. I know you've been chosen because these kinds of things are not true of people that God has not chosen. So as we get concerned sometimes about our souls, run your life through that filter. Say, does that describe me at all? You know, the Puritans back in like the 1600s, guys like Jonathan Edwards, they used to believe that if a person was anxious about their soul and they were concerned about their assurance of salvation, that you should not give them assurance, but you should send them off to go seek the Lord until God gave them assurance. Now, I get that point, but also the Word tells us right here. There's places in 1 John that tells us how you know. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. So, there's wisdom in saying, go seek the Lord, because if God's working on your soul, you need to feel the full brunt of that. But at the same time, I can tell you right here, this is how you know. Election 
in a theological sense, is as invisible as your DNA. You can't see it. You don't get a halo over your head when you get saved so everybody knows. Just like a tree. You plant the seed of a tree. You don't, you don't really know what kind of tree it is. When it starts to grow, you're like, oh, it's a tree, but I don't know. I think it's an apple tree. Well, let's wait and see. If apples show up on the tree, you know it's an apple tree. Do the apples make it an apple tree? No. It makes apples because it's an apple tree. Same thing. You're not saved because you do these things. You do them because you're saved. The Lord wants you to be sure. So to come back to that verse we read at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? If these things are true of you, you should rest assured in your salvation. If not, then you ought to seek the Lord in prayer to see where you stand. Now, if you've merely grown complacent, you know, I used to share the gospel all the time and I just don't anymore, then you've got to repent at once and return and do the former things, as Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Say, all right, we're getting back. We're not wasting another day. I, I, I'm not spending my life for a life that's going to be over in a couple short decades. I'm going to invest in the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at this and you're realizing, no, no, I'm, I'm not, I haven't fallen from this. I've never had this. This does not describe me. I've never worried about the return of the Lord. I don't ever share my gospel. I don't care how my life is lived, or I haven't until this morning. I, I don't know what you even talk about, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I've gone through 2020 weeping and gnashing my teeth at everybody around me. There's no joy. I've been in church for years. But if you've got nothing to show for all those years in church except for the correct doctrine and a couple tithe receipts, you need to be very afraid. Because many in that day will come to the Lord and say, Lord, but Lord, I went to Calvary Chapel and they taught verse by verse. And Lord, I went to the men's conference. And Lord, I, I prayed with people. And Lord, I, I donated for the events and I helped set up chairs. Lord, I, I was there every time the doors were open. And the Lord will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. A few of us? No, he says many. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. And don't sit here and start thinking, yeah, I know a few people like that. They need to hear this message. You, you examine yourself and stop looking at other people. Just forget that. That's the Lord's issue. The Bible even says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Judge yourself. Are you full of joy? Are you evangelistic? Are you imitating what is good? Are you full of the power of the Holy Spirit? And if not, why not? The good news is that today can be your day. What do I got to do to be saved? What did Paul say to the Ethiopian? If you believe, or if Philip said that to the Ethiopian, if you believe, then you may be saved. Peter said, come be baptized right away. Not, oh, let's go through a two-week course and see how this works. No, today is the day of salvation. You can be saved. You can be restored to your right position through repentance and a step of faith. My desire as your pastor and as your teacher is to be able to look at every one of you, and when I think of you in prayer, just to sigh and to smile, saying, I know that they're beloved of God. I know that they've been elect, because, I mean, look at all that. I hope all of these things will be true of us and increase among us as we look forward to the return of the Lord, because it might even be 
today.